want to go ahead and read the thing? The American Rabbit Breeders Association, headquartered in Pennsylvania in the United States, has been around for over a hundred years. They're exactly as obsessive as you might think, laser-focused on coat type, ear carriage, and the size and shape of dewlaps specific to 50 breeds of rabbits. They write breed standards, maintain pedigree registration, and hold an enormous archive on rabbit books, prints, and recordings. As a club for rabbit fanciers, Arba favors perfection and rarity with a focus on good looks. The ideal creme d'argent rabbit fur, for example, should be, quote, creamy white with an orange cast, end quote, while a palomino should be lynx-colored with erect ears. A Rhinelander rabbit should have a coat with butterfly markings. A satin angora must have a lustrous coat and a daily combing. The rabbits displayed at Arba shows are meticulously groomed with docile temperament and genealogy charts. They are, Arba assures us, the ideal pet, beautiful, social, and happy to use a litter box. They're easy to feed with their herbivore diet. Their little claws are too blunt to scratch. Best of all, your rabbit companions can produce more rabbits in just over a month's gestation, with litters of up to eight at a time. What could be more adorable? Gazing into the eyes of a prize-winning velveteen lop, you may be forgiven for imagining that all bunnies everywhere are just as nice to have around. Unfortunately, as any schoolchild in Australia can tell you, that's simply not true. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the Australian Rabbit Invasion. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, professor of borough architecture for Relative Disasters University's herbivore landscaping program. And I'm her brother Greg, the head stylist of ear fur for Relative Disasters Rabbit Grooming Salons Incorporated. And you do such a good job. I have to. Uh, I am back from COVID, which is why my voice sounds a little weird. Thank you for all the well wishes. I bounced right back, and I'm very happy to be back. Yes, we're happy to have you back. I missed you. Although, I loved hearing my adorable niece and nephew and my adorable <laughs> sister-in-law on the previous. I was not qualified to talk about amusement parks because I don't really enjoy them. <laughs> yes, yes. But I know your family does, so that was awesome. Thank it's you very true. much for stepping in. A lot of that conversation revolved around, this thing sounds really fun. Oh, never mind. It was fantastic. Yeah. I listened to it at work and the teeth <laughs> in the, yeah. what was it? The teeth in the water slide? It, yeah. Big enclosed water slide with a loop-de-loop -loop, uh, kept knocking people's teeth out, which would get embedded in the side and then cut up the next person going down it. Yeah. Right. So I'm listening to that and I'm like, don't throw up at work. Don't throw up at work. <laughs> Good times. That's what we're yeah. here for. Speaking of teeth, rabbits have big ones. You know, they never stop growing. That's a scary rabbit fact that I found out. Excellent. So what are our main sources for this one? You know, <laughs> okay. So I wrote this while I was taking a lot of different kinds of medicine. <laughs> and this is not the most um, well-formulated episode. Excellent. I will put the sources in the show notes, as I always do. Okay. Um, it's really just like a squishing up of different articles. I of course, yeah. Not, I was looking for books. Okay, so they have a lot of books about this. 
Um, I just could not get my sweaty little hands on them. Sure. I could read four pages of one book on Google Books. Um, <laughs> and then could your eyes crossed and at... you have fever dreams about the rest of it. Yeah. No, I... Exactly. I just, <laughs> I'm sorry, listeners. You might want to skip this one. <laughs> okay. All right. Rabbits. Rabbits. <laughs> Greg, today we're going to Australia, my favorite place. If I could live anywhere else, um, I would want to live in Australia. Really? Yeah, it's so beautiful. Um, yeah, it's gorgeous, but really, everything really there fun. wants to kill you. <laughs> Not true. I think that's what they tell people so that they stay out. I have an interesting Australia fact for you on that note, actually, if I can Please. like immediately crowbar us into a sidebar that distracts everyone. Uh, I learned the other day, uh, are you aware of the tele- the children's television show Peppa Pig? Uh-huh. Okay, so yep. there is an episode of that where Peppa befriends a spider, and the main episode of it, uh, the main message of that episode uh, is that, you know, spiders are not really things that we need to be afraid of. Spiders are awesome. I'm yeah, spiders spider. are awesome, but that episode got banned in Australia because in Australia, spiders are bed. not <laughs> things you really want to go around picking up too it's much. It's a bad message for kids. <laughs> it's, it's it's not helpful. <laughs> So I just, okay. uh, yeah, that, I just, you know, I was, I was reading up about weird, uh, weird TV facts this last week and Peppa Pig has an episode that was banned in Australia because it was about being friends with spiders. You know what else you don't want to be friends with in Australia? What's that? Rabbits. Really? I thought <laughs> yeah. you just wouldn't want the rabbits to be friends with each other. Well, it kind of goes hand in glove, doesn't it? Um, on this podcast, we like to say colonization ruins everything. And we're not wrong. I feel like we we don't have a lot of nuance in this statement. We just like saying it because it's That's true. fun to say. That's true. And it is fairly true. But in this case, colonization really does ruin everything. Yeah. Rabbits came to Australia aboard the First Fleet, which is the group of British ships that brought English people to Australia in 1788 to establish... The first European penal colony in yep. what is now New South Wales. There were around 1,400 people in this fleet. Uh, okay. The majority of them were convicts. Okay. And they came equipped to settle. So they weren't going back to England. This was not any right. kind of a temporary trip. No, were, this was your permanently. Yeah. Yeah, and to them, Australia was an unsurvivable wilderness. So... <laughs> They brought everything that they would need to carve out a living and keep themselves fed. Sure. Of course, they're ignoring that people already lived in Australia, yes. had lived in Australia for at least 50,000 years. Yep. And we're doing fine. Yep. These guys were like, no, I need my crops. I need my livestock. Yes. This is hilarious to me because if you fly into Australia now, they are really passionate about telling you what you cannot bring. (laughs) And a lot of those things are things that they brought in the first fleet. Um, Yeah. Well, things like nuts and seeds. Yep. Pets. (laughs) Yeah. Don't try to bring your pets to Australia. It does not go well. Yeah. So if you, so I went through the Melbourne airport, excuse me, the Melbourne airport in uh, like 2007 Okay. And you're greeted when you get off the plane, you're greeted by a huge sign warning you that if you'd been camping outside the country and if you had failed to wash the mud off your tent and your boots before entering Australia, mm-hmm. the government has the right to seize your stuff. Yes. Like that's how passionately they do not want you bringing things yeah. into the country. Well, because it's such a delicately balanced environment and they've 
learned this the hard way, when you introduce something that could upset that environment, it's real bad. And of course, if you want to bring a live animal into Australia, best of luck to you because you have don't. to have <laughs> just don't several layers of quarantine. Um, you have yep. to be licensed in some cases. You have yep. to have permission from the government. Australia knows about all the potentially problematic outside plants, bugs, animals, and frankly, they are just not chill about people bringing them into the no. country. They will throw people out. They will lock up pets and dogs and stuff like that. It, it's. I tried to bring Sadie, my cane toad, and they were so rude. <laughs> but she's such a friendly cane that. toad. Yes, we here at Relative Disasters are going to be covering the cane toad business later on. And, and no, do not bring a cane toad into a... So another thing you can't bring in is your pet bunny. No. Unless you're coming from New Zealand. Okay. I guess that makes sense. It actually has to do with rabies. Yeah. They don't have rabies in Australia, and they don't have it in New Zealand. And they don't want to have it either, so please don't Nobody bring it Nobody wants. With you. God, rabies is terrifying. Yeah, it is. Anyway, the first fleet went in the opposite direction from these pretty sensible boundaries and just brought <laughs> everything. Yep. They had all the alien nuts and seeds for an English-style farm, which cracks me up. Yeah. What could possibly go what wrong? What could go wrong? And they brought also a surprising amount of livestock animals. They had live cows, horses, pigs, sheep, and rabbits. Huh. Now, these are domestic rabbits, the tame kind. You right. Domestic right. rabbits, then you have wild rabbits. Right. These were the, the nice kind because they traveled better than wild rabbits. They're used to being in cages. They're used to having people around them. And they were probably a lot nicer to eat as well. Sure. Fewer parasites, more fat. Right. However, over the time that Europeans were settling in and going on with their farming, building cities, etc., these rabbits were still a little bit of a problem because domesticated rabbits are like domesticated pigs. Yeah. Okay. If they get out yep. and they find a good safe spot to live, they just go feral immediately, sometimes within one generation. And then you have a wild rabbit colony on your hands. Yeah. Uh, rabbits famously reproduce at astronomical rates. Mm -hmm. um, so female rabbits can become pregnant at three months old and produce up to 12 kits in a pregnancy of just 31 days. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's almost like they were designed to overpopulate environment. themselves. Yeah. 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 Immediately. Well, it's a good food source, I suppose. I mean... You, you want are constant rabbits. Not 100% correct there. I am not. I know I'm not. <laughs> so here's some more rabbit reproduction facts. Okay. After giving birth, a lady rabbit can become pregnant the next day. What? Yep. Wow. Okay. One female rabbit can produce up to 60 baby rabbits a year. Okay. One more rabbit fact for you. A group of rabbits is called a fluffle. <laughs> How cute is that? You're supposed to use it to talk about domesticated rabbits in a group, but I'm going to apply it to all rabbits because I like okay. it. Okay. Okay. Rabbits live in underground rooms and tunnels called burrows. And if yep. there are enough rabbits in a fluffle, <laughs> they can form a kind of burrow network called a warren. Yes. Those can get so big with enough rabbits, they can ruin a building's foundation. Yeah. So in 1846, this is prior to the real rabbit problem. Okay. Um, a group of rabbits escaped from an open-air market in Melbourne 
They made okay. a rabbit. Sorry, they made a warren under the police station next door, which oh, no. undermined the building and caused a partial collapse. Wow. Yeah. Even a small burrow can break a horse or a human leg. Yep. And it does tremendous damage to the topsoil because they're in there among the roots of the grasses. Yeah. yeah. So as soon as the grasses start shortening and dying off, um, the topsoil blows away like a yep. little dust bowl. The other big problem with rabbits is what they eat. <laughs> All of it. <laughs> if it's green, it's gone. Yep. They're the I mean, locusts of the animal kingdom. If you think about what they, the amount of calories you would have to take in to sustain this constant cycle of having babies, yeah. raising babies, uh, digging warrens, undermining police stations. Yeah, absolutely. It just, it's, those are calorie burning activities. <laughs> and if you're eating I mean, salad that's how I stay day, trim. You're just going to have to eat salad constantly. Yeah. Okay, so what they love the most are baby cereal grasses, like a freshly planted wheat field. Yep. That is their favorite thing to eat. But they'll make do with almost anything else that we grow for food. Okay. Okay, apple tree bark. They will take down an apple tree. They will eat all your vegetables. They will eat all your leafy greens. If you try to grow corn, they will eat the baby corn. They will eat wheat, rice. They are in love with every single food that we humans try to grow. Yeah. Uh, if you are thinking of like the Beatrice Potter rabbit. Yeah. Munching on a carrot. Wearing nope. a little suit. This is not that. These are more like the sharks from Jaws. Only instead of swimmers, they're eating all the vegetables. So on the other hand, they are great livestock. They're tame. They're friendly. They're easy to make more of. They, you can eat them. Oh, like, yeah. As long as you're eating other stuff, you're fine to yeah, eat rabbits, rabbits stew day. is a staple. And they have some really nice fur. Like you can make an excellent yes. garment out of rabbit fur. Yes. However, if they're not kept in a safe place and the population kept under control, they can be an absolute menace. So of all the dumb things Europeans brought to Australia, the five domesticated rabbits that they brought along were arguably one of the dumbest. Wait, they brought five? Uh-huh. I missed that. Just five? Yeah. Well, I assume they started out with more, but they got eaten. Wow. That's how many landed in Australia. Five. Five, yeah. It took five rabbits to overthrow Australia. <laughs> no, those these are not the rabbits that overthrew Australia. Okay, okay. These are domesticated rabbits. Right. Um, so they are really, okay. <laughs> so they're more susceptible to the things in Australia that eat rabbits. They're less able to dig out big, complicated warrens. And sure. they are happy to eat poison and die. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right. No, I understand that. But aren't they the basis for the menace that they become later? No, on? they're not. Oh, okay. Plot twist. Mm, those are different rabbits. Oh, okay. We're going to talk now about Thomas Austin. Okay. Thomas Austin was born in Somerset, England in 1815. He immigrated to Tasmania with his family when he was a teenager. He and his brother come to Victoria, the state of Victoria, in the 1830s, and they end up owning a 29,000-acre sheep station. Huh. Sheep are not enough for Thomas. He has a real love of English-style hunting, particularly shooting rabbits and partridges. Okay. So as the station becomes profitable, Thomas gets very wealthy. Like many wealthy people, he also gets very bored. Okay. One year, he asks his nephew, William, who is home in England to send him a few things that he could shoot. (laughs) 
William apparently couldn't find enough wild English rabbits. These are coming from Somerset, which is where Thomas Austin was from. Okay. So he subbed in a few wild European hares, as you do. Whoops. Yeah. Those rabbits did great. They made it all the way to Australia. Yeah. They flourished. Everything I read said that they flourished. That seems like the wrong word. Mm. And Thomas Austin had a great time shooting rabbits. <laughs> I'm going to read you a quote from a 1923 essay in the Queensland Naturalist. 1920s is when the rabbit problem is really, really bad. So he's, okay. this writer is looking back at the origins. Okay. Quote, in 1859, the clipper Lightning brought to Victoria for Mr. Thomas Austin of Barwon Park near Geelong what was described as an excellent addition to the livestock of the colony in the shape of 66 partridges, four hares, and 24 wild rabbits. Mr. Frank Mack of Narrow Mine, a nephew of Mr. Thomas Austin, informed the writer that on arrival the rabbits were enclosed in yards made of paling fences, no wire netting in those days, uh-huh. And a special gamekeeper was appointed to feed and tend them and destroy their natural enemies. Later on, a high flood swept away the paling fences, and the rabbits got a scatter on, but still they were in a measure protected, and as a special favor, my uncle presented a few pairs to different station holders in the colony. Okay, this all seems not 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 ideal. <laughs> Thomas Austin had a great time with his rabbits, I he loved shooting them. They were plenty yeah. to shoot. He gave them his presents. He let them run around. Uh, I'm going to read you another quote contemporary with that from the Yeoman newspaper from Melbourne. Ooh. Okay. Quote, Mr. Austin of Barwon Park mentions the extraordinary fecundity of the rabbits in this colony. Six <laughs> years ago, he turned out 13. Since then, their progeny has increased to such an extent that he has killed off his estate 20,000, and he computes that there must be on his property and in the neighborhood at least 10,000 more. Uh huh. So So now we can see what's happening here. Yeah. Yeah. One one guy with an enthusiastic uh, rabbit rifle is, uh, yeah, this isn't great. So, rabbits are obviously a prey animal. Sure. Yeah. There are plenty of animals in Australia that will happily eat one. It's one of the reasons why they reproduce so quickly. Right, but because they breed so fast and eat so much, they can't just be controlled by predators. Right. So as an invasive species, the presence of rabbits in the food chain interrupted an ecosystem that had already been interrupted by the introduction of European-style agriculture 100 years before and European livestock. Yeah. So though rabbits provide a meal, it's not proportionate to the amount of greens and vegetables that they're taking up. Yeah, and that's exactly. without the consideration of the damage their burrows and warrens are inflicting on the topsoil and on the ground itself. Yep. So by the time Thomas Austin dies in 1871... <laughs> oh no, the one person <laughs> holding them at bay. <laughs> right? He shoots 20,000 of them a year. That's what I'm thinking. I'm just imagining this one guy just He's walking around <laughs> shooting rabbits all day long. <laughs> I've got to get more. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, things got bad so the rabbits are starting out in the east and they are heading west at a rate of 70 miles a year oh geez okay uh they go all the way across australia in about 50 years Jeez. and they are a massive massive problem yeah so the early attempts at dealing with the rabbit problem were pretty much what you'd expect there were poisonings um there were mass excavations of burrows 
Okay. The government paid a bounty for rabbits. Ooh. And you could also make a living as a rabbit hunter on a farm or a livestock station. Okay. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. The rabbit canning industry really took off. And Australians had access to incredibly cheap rabbit fur hats. That was a big deal. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, you could also make a living as a rabbito, a professional rabbit seller who would ride around killing and selling rabbits. Apparently, they would just come to your door. Uh, you'd pick out a nice-looking rabbit from their collection, and okay. they would skin it for you for a few extra oh, pennies. Yeah. Just, like, right there? Right just, there. Oh, nice. Something okay. for your hat, something for yep. your dinner. So different areas would poison rabbits. Okay. These are like state initiatives. They would do, I saw a picture of this thing called a poison cart that would, you would roll it across your land and it would, it would put out these poison little plugs of grass and the rabbits would come along and eat them and die. Oh, okay. Yep. That makes sense. So there were just all these instruments and tools that could spread poison. Of course, of course, of course, if you are poisoning at Everything that level, else. yep, it's going to get into the food chain. It's getting in, into the water. It's, yep. you know, yep. Yep. not great. Not no. great. Uh, they also introduced predators. So <laughs> Even better. <laughs> to uh, keep the rabbits under control, people would um, let cats out. Okay. You would have feral cats. So in some areas, you'd have a huge rabbit problem and a huge, and a huge cat, cat problem. problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's what happens, folks. Yep. It's one bad decision after another. <laughs> this um, is, it's like a domino of bad decisions. It's just it, one it, thing falling into another it thing. It truly is. And remember, the land that has been, the land that is arable, yeah. is now trying to support things like wheat and sheep and. Which are not. Yeah. Right, so it's already stressed. Yeah. And then the rabbits come along and just, like, do even more damage on top of that. So at the end of the 19th century, the Australian government was looking at the rabbit problem, and they were like, do you know what we need? Uh, let me see. A, a way to keep the rabbits just out of farmland. Yeah. That's is exactly this is said. this the rabbit proof fence? You got it. Oh yes. So the rabbit proof fence was one of the most ambitious pest control projects in human history. Yeah. It was designed to contain the rabbits to the east with a physical barrier, and that is a two thousand mile wood and wire fence. Yep. That's two long fences running from the north to the south across, um, okay. but it runs down the western side of Australia. So yeah. It splits. The West Coast from the center of Australia, if that makes right. sense. So there are two long ones running north to south, and then there's a shorter one running east to west. The rabbit-proof fence took six years to build, and it yep. cost a lot of money, the equivalent yep. of 25 million Australian dollars, which is equal to 18 million U.S. dollars in today's money. Okay. Uh, did it work? No. No. Not at all. Not, not at really. All. <laughs> oh, okay, well, that's not fair. It does not work on rabbits. Yes. It <clears> works <throat> very well on other things. By the time the fence was built, there were already rabbits on both on sides. On the other of the side fence. of it. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, yeah. Which had to have felt just. Weird. Can you imagine being the guy driving the tent stakes into the ground at this point and just being like, yeah, um, boss? <laughs> I don't think you even tell anybody. You just keep going. <laughs> you just keep going. That's your job, man. 
Oof. By the 1920s, it is estimated there were 10 billion rabbits in Australia. I'm sorry, billion? Yep. And the fence was not necessarily keeping them to the eastern two-thirds of the country. I am going to read you a quote uh, from David Stead, who is formerly the Special Rabbit Menace Inquiry Commissioner to the New South Ooh. Wales government. Uh, like this, is part, <laughs> this is part of an article called A Giant Make-Believe. Okay. Quote, there is one thing outstanding very clearly in the matter. Whatever effective work the fence did, it absolutely failed in an effort to prevent the movement of rabbits from one part of the state to another. <laughs> From the beginning, it was largely a gigantic make-believe, a danger too, insomuch as it, insomuch as it, like other large fences, lulled the landholders most concerned into a false sense of security, which numbed his endeavors and really assisted in the spread of the rabbit. Yeah. End quote. Because of course, if you have this fence, you're not necessarily as worried about the rabbits. Or as aggressive when you find a couple. Oh sure, yeah. Oh, I just found one or two. <laughs> How many more could there be? <laughs> They're in love. Let's leave them alone. <laughs> <laughs> Why is my entire grain silo empty? Why is my house slowly collapsing into the ground? It's uh, it's all the rabbits. It's the uh, rabbits. The did not work on rabbits, but it was effective at keeping indigenous wildlife larger than rabbits from their yep. migration patterns and habit. Yep. Sorry, habitat use. Yep. Um, it is now called the state vermin fence, and it is actually effective at keeping emus and dingoes <laughs> out of farmland. Okay. So it's been left up and maintained. Sure. Um, we're just not calling it rabbit-proof. Why would you call it rabbit-proof? I, like, I think the wishful thinking or branding. You just want to you want to make sure it you know it sounds good to somebody. Are they hoping that the rabbit hops up to it and sees that it's a rabbit-proof fence and is like, oh, I guess we can't. No, no rabbits allowed on this side, sir. <laughs> it would have been uh, as effective, almost. In terms of usefulness to humans, I don't know if you've heard this story, but it's a really good one. Um, in this... 1931, yes. three young girls who had yep. been forcibly taken from their home in Jigalong uh, were taken to the native, sorry, sorry, the Moore River Native Settlement. Uh, on the other side of the continent, and they used the rabbit-proof fence to guide their way home, sorry, to guide them home, which turned out to be a 1,600-kilometer walk. In the 1950s, the myzoma virus was found to be very effective at killing rabbits. Yes. Oh, wow. Because we've tried everything else. Why not introduce a disease? <laughs> that, I think, is the thinking. I, I can think of a couple reasons, but no, no, no. How'd this work out? Well, this was a project from the 1950s, and it was extremely effective at killing rabbits. It reduced the population of European rabbits in Australia from 600 million. Yep. Remember, down from 10 billion. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, to 100 million. Okay. Okay. So it was effective. It's an insect-borne disease, and it doesn't seem to have any major effects outside the rabbit popu population. It is a... a virus that was designed to affect rabbits only to kill them very quickly and not to pass on to anything Humans. that might come along okay. near the rabbit. So it's a good thing that viruses never grow, evolve, or change. Plus, it is incredibly painful uh, for the rabbit. Yeah. Just, it is a gruesome, gruesome way to go. Uh, which is 
also the same as the calcivirus, which causes rabbit hemorrhagic disease. Oh, God. So we've got okay. two viral agents in play here. That was released into the Australian rabbit population in the 1990s. However, okay. both of these are insect-borne. So any place where rabbits are that insects are not, the rabbits yeah. are not getting these exposed to these viruses. And because rabbits reproduce so much, yeah. um, natural immunity has developed since these viruses have been out in the wild. Okay. Um, so currently, if a wild rabbit in Australia is infected by either one of these, it is only 40% fatal. Hmm. I get real nervous when we talk about yeah. viral solutions to biological yeah. pests. Um, <laughs> because what we're left with are super rabbits. Are super resistant <laughs> rabbits. And what are we going to do or, next? Or viruses that mutate and start affecting other forms of life. I know. Let's develop a snake that can eat nine rabbits at once. There we go. And now, uh, now we're going to have to develop a hippopotamus that can survive in a desert environment and eat a bunch of snakes. Yeah, keep the snakes under control. It, it tends to snowball, is my it point. It does. It really does. There are currently around 200 million rabbits living on 2.5 million square miles of Australia. They live in places you would not expect to find a rabbit. Okay. Rabbits have fur coats. What are they doing in the middle of the desert? Living underground. Possibly. I don't know. They're okay. super, super rabbits uh, up to no good. There are currently around 200 million rabbits living on 2.5 million square miles of Australia. It is estimated that they cost the Australian agricultural industry $200 million in lost crops every year. And that's in addition to the damage, the long-term damage that they do yeah. to the topsoil, um, to the ground integrity, and to the, I think it's 400 species that they directly affect within the food chain, indigenous species. That is just an astonishing amount of just sheer damage. Yep. Wow. It's too many fluffles. Too many too fluffles. Too many cute little bunnies. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I would like to tell you one more rabbit fact. Oh, please. Please do. Uh, this is going to be a riddle. Or no, you can guess. Are you ready? I am. <laughs> In Queensland, there is a $30,000 fine for keeping a rabbit as a pet. Okay. Only one kind of person is allowed to legally own a rabbit in Queensland. That rabbit must be sterile and domesticated. Okay. But guess who gets to own it? Uh, the chief rabbit, uh, the, the person whoever's, whoever's in charge of rabbit enforcement. No. I genuinely don't know. Who is it? <laughs> oh, is it, a, is it a snake? Like somebody who owns a snake? no okay all right Sorry. a magician <laughs> oh for goodness sakes okay okay so a magician may legally a own a rabbit without, without a rabbit a popping out of hat no i get it without a neutered <laughs> sterile rabbit <coughs> vaccinated <laughs> sorry i was wow taking a lot of medicine when i read that and uh no it's uh, that's absolutely <laughs> that's better than i would have thought okay because <laughs> uh, at least he can make it disappear if he has to all the magicians in queensland 
Yes, all of our all of our listeners who are magicians in mm-hmm. Queensland, thank both of you for tuning into this show. And that is the story of the Australian rabbit problem. All right, that is both wild, ridiculous, and deeply like disturbing. It's very unsettling. On it's a lot of super levels. unsettling. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're not uh, wrong. All right, all right. So here's here's my question for you. Uh-huh. So. We as humans are are going to attempt to colonize what probably Mars at some point in our existence, unless we blow ourselves up first. You know how much I love talking about colonizing Mars. So hit me. Which livestock animal do we bring to Mars? We don't. We bring plants. Just plants. Everybody mm-hmm. goes vegan on Mars. Okay. Well, we okay. So we would have to bring bees. Okay. Okay. So, so we have to have we bees. have to have Martian apiaries. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because we're going to have orchards, or we're going to have pollinating right. plants to eat. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So we're going to need bees. So bees. I think where we run into problems when we talk about colonizing other planets and doing this kind of like first fleet style European. Yeah, take we the can't. Whole house you can't terraform. Kind yeah, of thing. exactly. Yeah, we need to be better at adapting to what's there than trying to make what's there adapt to us. Yeah, and I would like to. Th- think that people are smarter than they were in 1788 and more aware of just the kind of damage you do to yourself when you colonize in that way yeah um so hopefully we'll be a little smarter but you know but hey well although we gave you slightly exaggerated fluffed up credentials at the top of the show we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible If you'd like to read more about our sources, a more complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us and our fluffle of bunnies at (laughs) relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to share a fluffle of insights we missed, or just shame us publicly. And you know you have to now. Please don't. I'm still so sick. Give me another five days. <laughs> Why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters? We have some new followers. I feel yes. like we're we're uh, increasing our fame on Instagram. Thank you. If you just start following us, it means a lot to us. And thank you to everybody who's been uh, referring us to friends and family. We have seen our listenership grow to levels that we not only never expected, but quite frankly, are a little bit uncomfortable. It's it's difficult to have this many people listen to you just talking I'm nonsense. I'm talking triple digits, Greg. Yeah, we triple are in triple digits. digits consistently, and it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for listening. It's really cool to have so many people, you know, interested enough about the stuff we blather on about. So, Do you have any housekeeping? Uh... I want to thank everybody for their very nice feedback on my kids who were actually surprisingly nervous to record for the podcast, but they were those little hams. I don't believe that. It was pretty great. Um, So thank you for all your kind words about that. Uh, I do have a tiny bit of housekeeping. Um, I neglected in my uh, entirety to tell people where they could watch the class action park lawsuit uh, the Class Action Park documentary. Uh, it airs on HBO, and I believe it's streaming on HBO Max. Sweet. So if you want to see that and you have access to those services, 
check it out. It is a crazy cool documentary. It's very well done. Does it have video of going down that crazy 9G's water slide? No, it has. There, there is no video of that, probably for legal reasons. Um, I don't, I don't think they wanted proof of what it, what it did to people. What Uh, kind of a nanny state do we live in? Right, exactly. (laughs) Uh, But they do have some (laughs) crazy, like animation of it, and even just watching a little cartoon person go down it was horrifying enough for me. I so. might actually be more comfortable with a cartoon person. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I was looking at pictures of it, and I was like, 90s? How? So I'm going to have to uh, check that out. It, it's bigger than it looks in the pictures. Sure. <laughs> anyway. Uh, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion. And please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. What you got for us, Greg? On the, on this podcast, we we talk a lot about the effect that wealthy people have on the area around them. Sometimes they import a bunch of rabbits for shooting fun. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes they defraud people out of millions. Sure. But this next story is an interesting one because we're actually going to have you rooting for the wealthy person. Okay. This is the story of a little girl who came from extremely economically disadvantaged circumstances mm-hmm. and literally struck oil okay. only to have the so-called caretakers of her estate attempt to take it away from her. How she fought back and ultimately defeated these uh, chicanerists is what we're going to talk about next time. On the next episode of Relative Disasters, We're going to talk about the attempt to defraud Sarah Rector. And is this a disaster? Did they get away with it? Uh, She got away with making their lives a disaster. Perfect. We love that. (laughs) It's pretty great. All right. That sounds amazing. I will have my voice back to normal and uh, look forward to talking to you next week. All righty.